The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we choose three pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson and on the podcast this week. Former business secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg reads his diary and tells us why it's good to be back on the back benches. Julian Jessup dubbed a truscateer in The Spectator for his informal advisory role over Liz Truss's economic policy reflects on the mistakes that were made. And finally, Melanie McDonough reads her notes on candles. Up first, Jacob Rees-Mogg. After the shale gas boat, I was literally sent to Coventry. I visited UK Battery Industrialation Centre on Thursday. It is a remarkable facility that helps take innovative batteries from the development stage through to production. It means companies only need the hundreds of millions of investment once they have shown their product works and is scalable. It was funded by the Faraday Battery Challenge, and I was there to announce a further £221 million of taxpayers' money to see what more can be done. This is one of the rather better ways BEIS spends money, as some of our policies seem designed to ruin industry. I'm particularly concerned about steel, where the price of energy is, in normal times, about 60% more than our competitors. We then give subsidies to steel to keep their operations open. The emissions trading scheme makes this worse, as they lose credits if they do not produce loss-making steel, which they cannot sell. This ought to be sorted out, but the Treasury does not seem interested. On the way back from Coventry, the news that Liz Truss was resigning came through. Liz is an admirable person, of strong principles, and I supported what she wanted to do. Unfortunately, it did not work. Inevitably, the moment she went, the telephone started buzzing with potential candidates and slates. I wanted Boris back, as he had the mandate, and his removal in July was a mistake. Hence, his campaign began and started well, but then ran out of steam. This was clear by Sunday morning, when my slumbers were disturbed by the great man himself prior to the Laura Koonsberg show. Unlike the famous father, the lark is not my morning alarmer, so I was not entirely gruntled by so early a call. Gruntled is one of the words which really exists, even though the negative is almost invariably used. Some years ago, my youngest sister, Annunciata, and I looked up many of these words, such as, quote, gusted, unquote, and, quote, Ruth, unquote. Almost all of them are in the Oxford English Dictionary. And when rereading Woodhouse's The Luck of the Bodkins at the weekend, I noticed he used Ruth as a standalone without the less. These words ought to be brought back into circulation, and I expect spectator readers to rally to this cause. The interview with Laura Koonsberg was set up so that a clock was visible in the background, and reassuringly more people watched the clock than listened to my ephemeral comments. It has M for 12, comma, 0 for 3, and G for both 6 and 9, spelling in capitals, M-O-G-G. It was made by the Cormans of Temple Cloud for Jacob Mogg, after whom I am named. 
and given to me by my father. Jacob was a successful local businessman who was one of the early patrons of William Smith, the geologist. Smith lived in North East Somerset and worked out the strata of rock from the pit at High Littleton, in which Jacob was an investor. The Cormans made clocks for several generations and were, I believe, also the local undertakers. A grandfather clock requiring similar carpentry skills to a coffin. The 807th anniversary of Agincourt was the day on which Liz Truss resigned. In a short ministerial career, I have attended two farewell cabinets and stood in Downing Street to cheer people in and out. The Downing Street statement is becoming as much a part of our constitutional settlement as the Lord Mayor's banquet, yet it is a fairly new innovation. In days served, Liz is the shortest ever, but unlike her immediate predecessors, she served two terms rather than one. The Prime Minister is appointed by the Sovereign, and Liz kissed hands twice. At a general election, a Prime Minister continues and is not reappointed. Thus, since the war, only Churchill, Wilson and Liz Truss have served two terms. All the others only did one. This may make the pub quiz question slightly harder. As luck would have it, my ministerial career ended on a day when the House was debating the retained EU law bill. This is an essential bill to complete Brexit, so the Romaniacs absolutely hate it and were out in force. I have spent the last eight months working on it and pushing it to completion. The obstacles put in its way were manifold and only the absolute determination of Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss saw it to the floor of the House. Dean Russell delivered the opening speech, which I had seen drafts of before, and dealt brilliantly with an array of Europhile interventions. His mastery of the detail was superb. In a few short weeks, he has proved himself to be a first-class minister. I had the luxury of speaking from the back benches once again. It is much easier than being a minister, and more fun. There is no set text or collective agreement, merely the ability to address an argument and push a cause. No need to suck up to people who make fatuous points, but an ability to debate. As Disraeli said of going to the House of Lords, quote, I am not dead, but in the Elysian fields. That was Jacob Rees-Mock. Next, Julian Jessup. Now that the final curtain has fallen on Liz Truss's brief and tumultuous premiership, it is time for reflection. A chance to set the record straight and also to own up to mistakes, especially for those of us who tried to advise her. What went wrong? Yes, the tipping point was Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget, but three problems were by then already brewing. First, the leadership campaign over the summer had become very focused on tax cuts. Even Rishi Sunak ended up saying he would cut the basic rate of income tax from 20% to 16% by the end of the next parliament, while Jeremy Hunt, now Chancellor, would not settle just for cancelling the planned increase in corporation tax to 25%, but instead wanted it cut to 15%. This push for lower taxes helped set the fiscal agenda for the new government. But the format of the debates, essentially an exchange of soundbites, meant that there was little serious discussion about which taxes to cut, why and when. Second, Truss pitched herself as a disruptor, eager to challenge the old orthodoxies and institutional groupthink that have held the economy back. 
but this was widely interpreted as trashing the institutions themselves, including the Treasury, the Bank of England and the Office for Budget Responsibility. This meant that the knives were out for her in most of the media as well as the markets. Finally, time that should have been spent fine-tuning her tax reforms were eaten up by the energy crisis. In August, there was a very real threat that the crisis would turn into a catastrophe, with some estimates that the average household bill would jump to £6,000 a year, driving inflation to 20%. Mitigating this was obviously necessary, but hugely expensive. I still regard the energy price guarantee as something that went right, but at the time, it left little room for discussing anything else. It was not until the first weekend of September, just before Trust became Prime Minister, that I had my first, and as it turned out, last meeting with Truss and Kwarteng, held each evening. The meeting was also attended by my fellow economist Gerard Lyons and Andrew Lillico, and the aim was to provide background briefing on the economic outlook and the mood of the markets. I thought the meeting went well, but events then moved quickly on. The early days of the Trust Premiership were dominated by the announcement of the energy price guarantee and the sad death of Her Majesty the Queen. Kwarteng took some flack for suggesting that this disrupted preparations for the fiscal event on the 23rd of September, but he was right. At the very least, a follow-up meeting the weekend after the Cheathening Gathering never took place. In the end, I had no further contact with either Truss or Kwarteng. So this was the backdrop to the mini-budget itself. In my view, the mistake here was not the energy price guarantee or the cancellation of the increases in national insurance and corporation tax, or even suspending the usual analysis from the office of responsibility. All of this had been announced in advance. What spooked investors was the unexpected extras, the cuts in income taxes, including the 45p rate. All of this was worsened by Kwarteng's apparent doubling down on tax cuts on the Sunday, despite the market's obvious and growing concerns about fiscal credibility. This was particularly frustrating because there was no shortage of warnings about the importance of keeping the markets on side. Gerard Lyons and I wrote a paper for the evening meeting which stressed the need to move carefully. Why did our advice fail to cut through? I can only guess. Market sensitivities mean that outsiders cannot be in the room when budget discussions are made. But perhaps Kwarteng judged that tax cuts could deliver the benefits he wanted more quickly than supply-side reforms. Or perhaps the advice from myself and others was simply not clear enough. It is just about conceivable that this storm could have passed. Many independent commentators initially welcomed the broad thrust of the package, including the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. In an alternative reality, the trust team could have quickly followed up the budget with an extensive programme of supply-side reforms, culminating in the publication of a more credible medium-term fiscal plan in November, accompanied by the necessary blessing from the OBR. And then in the spring, a further package of tax cuts. As things worked out, the caustic market reaction gained a momentum of its own. In part, that was just bad luck. The dollar had been strong against most major currencies, making sterling slide look more dramatic than it really was. Interest rates are rising worldwide. However, the rise in UK government bond yields, or gilts, was exacerbated by the increased use of liability-driven investment strategies by some pension funds. This triggered a vicious spiral of margin calls and forced gilt sales, driving up yields further and forcing the Bank of England to step in. 
Even this could have been manageable. But the turmoil in the mortgage market was arguably the final straw. As it happens, mortgage rates would have jumped anyway as UK and global interest rates returned to more sustainable levels. However, by now, the government had lost any control of the narrative and was being blamed for absolutely everything. The rest you know. In the end, was there anything to Trussonomics? Ironically, Truss summed it up best in her leaving speech outside number 10. She is surely right that we need to be bolder in facing challenges and taking advantage of Brexit freedoms, and that the UK cannot afford to be a low-growth economy where the state takes an ever-increasing share of our national income. Sadly, she was unable to deliver. Even though I only had a small part to play, I am sorry that I could not have done better and more too. But was this a revolution worth pursuing? My answer there is an unequivocal yes. That was Julian Jessup. And finally, Melanie McDonough. Under the sink. That's where most of us will be keeping a stash of candles in case the lights go out this winter on account of an erratic electricity supply. There's nothing worse than finding yourself in darkness and not remembering where you've left the candles and the matches. Be prepared. We've got out of the habit of using candles except for dinner parties, so we've lost touch with our inner chandler. Not too many children go to sleep looking at nightlights because they're afraid of the dark. So I sought out the founder of Candlemaker Supplies off the Shepherd's Bush Road in London, David Constable, who remembers the 1970s when blackouts meant everyone using candles. His tip is to chill your candles before using them. That way they last longer. As for the composition of the candle, he says it's really a choice between paraffin wax, which is cheap and effective, and beeswax, which is lovely and long-lasting, but at least three times more expensive, or, his preference, a mix of the two. See, a nine parts paraffin to one part beeswax, but not soya. Soya wax is awful, he says. If you're an eco-vegan with issues about paraffin and beeswax, your options are less good. Time was when candles were even more animalic, being usually made from tallow, rendered animal fat, which had the advantage of being cheap and the disadvantage of being smelly. That was displaced in the 19th century with paraffin and spermaceti oil. In churches, certainly Catholic churches, candles must be more than half beeswax. Formerly they had to be all beeswax. The wax represents Christ's flesh, the wick his soul, the flame his divinity. In the Middle Ages, according to the medieval historian, Eamon Duffy, people would get a wick the length of someone they were praying for and make a whopper candle to burn for them. The alternative was to recoil the wick into a spiral, covered in wax, which was the cheaper option. Votive candles are everywhere. Alan Matthews, of Charles Farris Church Candlemakers, observes that in a church they're on stands and warns against clustering them together at home. Some households will be fragrant with frangipani and pine cones during blackouts, because scented candles are pretty well the default present for women. Some, frankly, stink, but Linda Pilkington of Ormond Jane makes some lovely ones. She advises proper candle management. The first time, let the candle burn for at least three hours so as to melt a puddle right across the edge of the holder. Otherwise, you end up with the wick tunnelling into the wax rather than burning right across. Extinguish by putting on the lid. Keep the wick upright. If it slants, burn it a little, then nudge it straight. For a DIY candle, she says, lay a sheet of beeswax on a board, put a length of cotton wick down the edge and roll the wax tightly over it, as if you're making a Swiss roll. There. Simple. 
And that's everything for this week. If you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine? I'm Oscar Edmondson, and please join me again next week. <laughs>